0: Pleasure to be back with you again this evening. Uh, The sermon text for the evening is Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10. Let us hear the Word of God. Brethren, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. For let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith." This ends the reading and hearing of this portion of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. Tonight, <clears throat> we come to the last of our sermons on the book of Galatians. Next time we're to be together, I am to start on 1 Timothy. So that'll be our next series. That's where we're headed. Uh, there's a lot there about behave, about the elders behaving themselves, so y'all might be in prayer, not just for me, but uh... <laughs> you'll remember that recently we discussed the uh, issue of Christian liberty. This would be a natural progression to this this uh, idea of this evening, this text. This evening, since he had spent most of the time leading up to that in a discussion about what it means to be saved by grace. That's been, you know, the big theme of this thing the, the doctrine of salvation by grace defended against its detractors who were advocating salvation by works. Uh, I say that it's a natural progression. Because one would naturally wonder something like, okay, I see the relationship between law and grace, now what do I do with it? Now, flowing from that discussion, which we saw, I think it was four weeks ago actually, of Christian liberty comes the answer to the next question, which is, what happens if someone goes overboard in exercising his Christian liberty? This is a problem a lot of times. People that understand that they're saved by grace. What happens then if somebody goes overboard in in, in exercising it? Well, the answer is given to us tonight. The answer is that we are to help one another grow in grace, which means that we are to help one another keep from going overboard in our exercise of liberty. That means that we must teach one another to be self-disciplined. The propositional idea of this sermon this evening is self-discipline is essential to living for Christ. Self-discipline is essential to living for Christ. And I want to look at it under three heads, and they are corporate self-discipline, which we get from verses one and two, individual self-discipline from verses three through five, and then productive self-discipline verses six through 10. Those will constitute the three points of our sermon this evening. So first of all, corporate self-discipline from verses one and two. Now by corporate self-discipline, I mean to address more than simply formal church discipline, formal church discipline being defined as when the elders have to get together and bring judgment uh, against someone for doing something wrong. We do know that church discipline, uh, both formal and corporate as I'm about to define it and describe it, church discipline is necessary for the proper functioning of the body. Our position as a church, as a denomination, is that there are three marks to the true church. These are the proper preaching of the word, the proper administration of the sacraments, and the proper exercise of church discipline. These are three essential parts of the church. Church discipline, then, is like one leg of a three-legged stool. If you saw off one leg, the whole thing is going to topple. It's it's going to be uh, awkward. It's not going to work right. Now, I know that my Uncle Homer used to milk cows on a one-legged stool. Uh, (laughs) And he could do it pretty good. But if you set that stool over by itself, it wasn't going to sit on that one leg. The three three legs are essential to the... Proper functioning of at least most, shall we say, stools. Now there are many, many churches today, and sadly I'm afraid probably some of them are PCA churches, who know very little, if anything at all, about church discipline. Their philosophy seems to be live and let die. In other words, if somebody is engaged in scandal or in some lifestyle, which the Bible says is sinful, then just leave them alone. Indeed, we're going through this, I think, in the PCA right now with our this side B homosexuality junk that has been plaguing us for about three years and how it is that we have not yet dealt with that definitively. I am bum-fuzzled. I don't know. Um, by the way, you might be in prayer for our Presbytery coming up. A week from Tuesday, I believe it is, because First Pres, it is my understanding, is going to try to is going to present an overture to be presented to the General Assembly to again address that situation. They have apparently made a study of the reasons that overture 15, the one which said that people who have homosexual tendencies are not allowed to be ordained. Uh, they have done a study of the arguments about why that, why people voted against that, and hopefully they will be able to address those arguments in this overture, but this is something that needs to be prayed for. It, it is incredible to me that our church, our denomination, has, has gone this far in allowing, indeed approving in some places uh, homosexual tendencies, even if they are celibate nonetheless. But uh, my point here is that when a church takes the position, the position that, well, let me just back up. Uh, I said that I think many churches don't know anything about church discipline. I think there are a good many PCA churches that don't, or we wouldn't have that situation before us. Why don't they want to? Well, they don't want to look judgmental before a watching world, for one thing. They sure don't want to have a negative growth rate. If if anybody found out that they were disciplining in that church, who would want to come there? If we take people off the rolls for sin, that would cut down on the membership and the growth figures. So we just leave them on forever and assume that They are Christians just because they once made a profession of faith. I think a lot of us are like the elder's wife in a church that I know of. One time we had a young man who was my age, actually, graduated from high school there in 1962. And uh, then he had left town while he was, I don't know, 14, 15. He had uh, supposedly professed faith in Christ and joined a church. Graduated from high school, went to... Memphis, where about the only thing ever heard out of him anymore was when he was in trouble of some sort, with the law, divorcing, blah, blah, blah. You just living a real profligate life, and um, the pastor of that church was trying to get the session to do what they ought to do in terms of keeping a clean roll. And when they got to him, uh, they just balked. And the wife of one of the session members. Uh, sent word back with that session member the next time they met, uh, saying that he was not to be taken off the roll, because being on the roll of that church was perhaps the only hope he would have of going to heaven when he died. Uh, that kind of stupid, what passes for logic and and ecclesiology is just horrible. And uh, they're all dead now, so I don't know. They may be having a reunion somewhere else for all I know. Or they may all be in heaven. Who knows? But when a church takes this kind of position, it cuts off one of the three legs of that three-legged stool. And it collapse, its collapse might not be immediate, but it will happen. To take such a position, you see, is to invite the wrath of God upon that church because that church is part of the body of Christ. It is part of the bride of Christ. It is a bride which he expects to see spotless when he returns to take her away. And if those charged with her purity allow her to become polluted by allowing nonbelievers and impenitent sinners to remain in her midst, they are in rebellion against the Lord of the church. And it is no less important than that. One thing that you notice in reading the Old Testament is that when one or a few sinned, everybody suffered until the sin was dealt with. A church which is undisciplined is a weak church. It is a church which is lukewarm. And we know what Christ said he would do with those who are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. He would, and I don't tell you this to shock, I tell you this because it is true. He said he would vomit them out of his mouth. Some of the translations say, I will spew you out of my mouth. The word there translated spew is omeo, emeo, I mean. And it is the word from which we get our word emetic, and an emetic is something which is given to someone to make him vomit. And so that is how much value those who are neither hot nor cold will be to Jesus the equivalent of a pile of vomit. And this should serve as a wake up call to elders and people of any church which tolerates unrepentant sinners on its role by refusing to deal with them, assuming that they'll come back one day and that we can't be judgmental about it because Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. I believe, however, that the scope of these two verses is broader than simple formal church discipline. That's all I've been talking about at this point is formal church discipline. But I believe the scope of verses one and two is much broader than that. This is a call for the members to be involved in the ministry of corporate self discipline when necessary and for those dealt with by those members to listen and to change if the charge is legitimate he says that if someone is called in a trespass quote those who are spiritual are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness those who are spiritual is not just the elders Well, then who are those who are spiritual? They are those, I believe, for whom the Holy Spirit has already sanctified in that area of sin which the errant brother or sister finds him or herself in now. Let us say, for instance, that someone is in the process of becoming a drunk. The one who is spiritual might be someone else who has already been there and done that and has come out of it and now has that behind him and he is in that particular uh, environment the one who is spiritual the one who can help another person or let us say that someone sees a family about, uh, beginning to pa- uh, fall apart who better to minister to that family than someone whose own family has undergone the same stresses and learned how to deal with it under Christ or let us say that someone is getting deeper and deeper into debt And his future doesn't look very good right now. Who better to deal with that than someone who's been there and and come out from under it by applying the principles of the word of God to personal financial management? In other words, corporate self-discipline is the job of the church. Now, how is it to be done? He says it is to be done with gentleness. The one who is spiritual here deals with the errant brother or sister not in a haughty way not looking down his nose at the one whose life is out of control but as a loving and concerned christian sibling sibling whose desire is for the best for his brother or his sister and how does one do that well he remembers he remembers where he has been And he remembers why it is that he is now the one who is spiritual in that area. It is because he has been just as big a fool himself. I believe that that is one possible construction which can be put on the phrase concerning yourself lest you also be tempted. In other words, I believe this can mean remembering that you used to do the same things, warn him away. And be careful lest you are tempted to return to that way. So it could mean be careful when you do this, lest the one who is involved in that sin tempt and ensnarl you to go with them and bring you down as well. Or it could mean be careful lest you become prideful in dealing with that person. Either one of these things, I think, is a legitimate possibility. Whichever is appropriate, the point here is the same. Let a man, obviously, or a woman, who goes as the one who is spiritual, beware, lest he forget that he's nothing in his own strength. He must go in the strength of Christ, relying upon the Holy Spirit to lead and to and, 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 and that the situation would become exacerbated if he does not now there's a purpose here and it is not just to make sure that the church is cleansed of sin although that obviously is part of it but the primary purpose of discipline is the restoration of the offender to the glory of god the church after all is not composed of those who has arrived it is composed of those who are on the way This is called in verse 2, bearing another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ. What does this mean? It means that the one who is, quote, spiritual, helps his brother out of the sinful mess that he is in, motivated by a love for his brother, as intent as his love is for himself. Remember the second great table of the law love your neighbor as yourself and so our concern for our errant brother or sister must be that deep it must be concern for the well-being the eternal well-being of our brother or sister now do you want to go to hell well of course not are you supposed to love your brother or your sister as yourself well sure and you don't want him to go to hell either and so what then does that call us to? It calls us to a ministry of rescue, the end result of which is the development of corporate self-discipline. this, this describes a very, very mature and disciplined church. And this is what we are called to here. And this brings us secondly to uh, individual self discipline. It should be obvious now that if corporate self-discipline is done, it will have the effect of yielding individual self-discipline. I mean, how many people are going to develop a sinful lifestyle if they know that their peers are going to come to them and tell them that what they're doing is wrong? The likelihood is not very great. I'll give you an illustration. One of the more successful parachurch ministries that i have known is a group called the navigators you all may be familiar with them as well they specialize in discipleship they sure do when they get a convert they stay with him they teach him to become a christian in thought word and deed they hold one another accountable and they have an excellent track record That's the goal of corporate self-discipline. It is individual self-discipline, which is then passed on to others. When a person is self-disciplined, he he limits his self-deceit. Look at verse 3. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, then he deceives himself. We might also say, well... If anyone knows himself to be nothing, that is, weak, prone to sin, in danger of being under God's judgment when he does so, then he is far less likely to deceive himself and far more likely to do that which will not get him in trouble. There's an application for those who are the ones who go to the errant member and those who are the errant member. Members. And we see that in verse 4. It is, examine yourself before God. Each person ought to see himself before God, compare himself to God's absolute righteousness, and he will see that one, he needs to listen to the brother or the sister who comes to him, and two, he needs, or two, he needs to be careful about being puffed up in going to that errant brother or sister. Either way, we are encouraged to humility, whether we be the one going to or the one gone to. We are encouraged here to humility by this verse. Before God, even the most spiritual of us falls short, far short of being righteous. You know that, and I do too. And that should encourage the errant sinner, and it should humble the spiritual one. One of them will answer for his response to the spiritual brother, and the other will will answer for his ministry to the errant sinner. Self-discipline is a necessary element in the enjoyment of the Christian life. We cannot enjoy the Christian life without it. I'm not saying we've got to be a bunch of monks or hermits or something like that in order to be self-disciplined. I think you know that. Self-discipline is necessary to the enjoyment of the Christian life. Show me a man who is satisfied with being undisciplined spiritually, and I'm going to show you someone who is likely not a true believer. There may be exceptions to that, but the likelihood is if someone is satisfied with being undisciplined, the likelihood is he is not a true believer. Show me someone who will not accept spiritual advice about a sin problem. And I'll show you someone whose pride and commitment to self are far more important than his commitment to Christ. Without individual self-discipline, the exercise of so-called Christian liberty is in reality nothing but cosmic anarchy. And this brings us third and finally to Productive self-discipline from verses 6 through 10. Productive self-discipline. Verse 9 is an interesting verse. Hendrickson uh, says this refers to paying the preacher. Let me read this to you if I can find it here right quick. That's where he says um, um, something. Yeah, verse 9. Well, shoot. Read verse 9. That's where he says... Has anybody got it? What does it say? Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap. Yeah, let us not not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap. Now, Hendrickson says that this refers to paying the preacher. Now, where he got that, I don't know. As much as I would like to develop a point, which is near and dear to me, I do not believe... I do not believe that that is the primary thrust here. Look where it is. It's right in the middle, all that stuff about discipline. And since the rest of this has been about interpersonal disciplinary relationships the and responsibilities of individual church members to others, I believe this section is also. So if that be the case, what is it that we've been taught there? Well, first of all, we're being taught that what we sow is what we will reap. I believe there are two sides to that coin. One is, if members of the church simply leave one another alone when they see a situation which they really should address, then they help sow the seeds of that person's destruction, probably, at least perhaps, his eternal destruction. They allow him to damn himself by making no attempt to dissuade him from his errant way. They are accomplices in his self destruction. They become the Dr. Kevorkians of the kingdom, aiding in the suicides of their brothers and their sisters. But beyond that, secondly, I, they sow their own destruction, not just the destruction of the person doing the self destruction, but they sow their own destruction because they sow the destruction of the church. If the church becomes weak, it cannot and will not uh, warn people from their sin. And so they will die in their sins. And those who are disobedient to the call to look after others will suffer just as those to whom they should be going. That is how important this is. Now let me just kind of parenthetically say here, I've said before and I believe it now, I think that you all are a very mature church. And I have no reason to doubt the salvation or the commitment of anyone in this room. I do believe that. But I also know people and some of the best people that I have known have apostatized for various reasons, under various temptations and so forth. So this is maybe not germane to us when we leave this room today, but it is certainly something that we should put in our memory bank, and think about if and when we find ourselves in situations where people are dropping the ball spiritually. What we're being taught here is something else also, in addition to these two things. He differentiates between sowing to the flesh and sowing to the spirit. Those who refuse to be spiritual, who refuse to do that, are acting according to the flesh. They do not do what they are told because they put something else ahead of the honor and the command of Christ for them. And that something else might be their own desire. Might be their fear of other men. Might be whatever. But whatever it is comes before their service to Christ. They sow to the flesh. They will reap to the flesh. In other words, They might wind up with a peaceful church, but it will not be a spiritual church. It will be the peace of death. All the members will have killed one another by neglect. He reinforces the importance of this idea by repetition. He says, and let us not grow weary in doing good. The doing good here is not some general thing like paying our taxes or helping little old ladies across the street it has a context and that context is helping one another to be self-disciplined and so if that is considered doing good as he says here then not doing it should be it seems to me considered doing evil and that is something then for which those who do not do it will have to give an account When they stand before God their judge. One day. The point of all of this is. When one is self-disciplined. And when he is involved in the discipleship of others. It will be productive. It will produce spiritual fruit. And it will subdue fleshly desires and activities. But even if. It is not God's will to restore such a one, even if, and that happens sometimes too, our being faithful will accrue to the glory of Jesus the King. And that is more important than the result, which is God's business anyway. Well, these things then bring us to our conclusion, both of this lecture uh, sermon tonight and also of our study of the book. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man, as you well know, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we can only do that when we are committed to his service wholeheartedly. And what are we told to do in the Christian life? We're told to work out the implications of our salvation with fear and trembling. All throughout the scriptures, we are exhorted to obedience, active obedience, which sets us apart as God's holy people. Making a profession of faith doesn't impress anybody if there's no obedient life emanating from it. And that is why there are so many almost worthless church roles around us everywhere where people get saved during some revival or something and then are never seen again. They're counted as saved, but they aren't. Jesus is the prime example of the obedient man. He did what he was called upon to do without fussing about it. He saw duty, and he did it. He did not say that he didn't feel like it today. He did what was before him. We are his followers, but only if we follow his example. At the beginning, I said that if someone is abusing his Christian freedom, then we ought to help him become more self-disciplined. And um, there is a threefold application then to that. First of all, if someone comes to you and says, I perceive that such and such is a sinful practice in your life, let's talk about it, then you ought to do so. I'm not saying you ought to like it. I mean, how many of us men like it when we hear our wives say, we need to talk? (laughs) I don't. This would be even worse, I expect, (laughs) if someone comes to you and says, you got a problem, and we need to talk about it. But in that case, it really needs to be done. The person might be right. You might be wrong. Either way, you'll both benefit from the discussion if, for no other reason than that, you will come to a better understanding of one another, and that's important. To get all huffy about it is to simply demonstrate that you have no willingness to submit yourself to the rest of the church for your own spiritual well being. That is what it means to refuse to do it. This is evidence of pride. It is evidence of an unteachable spirit, not a characteristic of Christian maturity. A second point of application we can get from this is that if you see something which is obviously a sinful practice or something which might bring scandal to the church or shame upon our profession, then the proper response is to go to the person the one who is involved in doing that, and uh, discuss it. That would also be difficult. It's difficult for somebody to come to you. It's difficult to go to someone. But if you do it, then as you talk about it, it might turn out that it's simply a misunderstanding. Might be that you have misunderstood what you saw or heard. Might be that you're bringing it up. Might make an innocent person aware of what is being said about him. And he needs to know that in a timely way to head off gossip and criticism. You do him no favor by letting that situation develop and fester. And there is a third point of application also, which is that if there is a sinful practice in the church, ultimately it does become the business of the session. The session has been granted the authority to ensure spiritual purity insofar as that is possible in the church. And that means that sometimes they must act officially in the discipline of errant members. And that means that they hope that the offender will repent and become self-disciplined for the glory of Christ. And if he does not, then it becomes their sad duty. Duty, their duty is to Christ, not to the church. It becomes their sad, and it is sad, duty to take action up to and including, demonstrating to him the end result of his action if he does not change. That result being exclusion, perhaps eternal exclusion from the people of God, And that is not something they take lightly, but it is something which has to happen every now and then under certain circumstances. And so as we conclude, let me say, let us remember that whatever is sown will produce fruit of some sort. Let us be busy then to build one another up in love, strengthening the body of Christ, so that we together may hear him say to us one day, well done. Well done. Let us pray. Oh God, our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this book which has reminded us over and again that salvation is by grace and not by words. We've been reminded of your love for us and reminded of what you would call us to do particularly this evening. And Lord, I pray for this church that it would never, ever find itself in a position where it is necessary to take the kinds of actions which we've discussed this evening. And I also pray that if those actions ever are appropriate, that they would not shy away from duty and not prove to be cowards concerned more with the ideas and the thoughts of men than of our Lord Jesus. Thank you O oh God for this book, thank you O oh Lord for the book, the Bible. Thank you for our relationship with one another. Thank you O oh God that we are your people. Thank you in Jesus